Prologue. I began writing the script for this episode immediately after I'd finished my series on my life with Shelby. I had never cried so much about anything in my entire life as I did over Shelby's loss. I cried when I contemplated her impending death. I cried when she died. I cried when we picked up her ashes. I cried when we spread them. I cried every time I sat down to write our story, her story. I cried as I recorded the audio. I cried as I produced each of the four episodes. All the crying was out of character for me. I grew concerned and asked my therapist to listen to the episodes and help me understand what was going on inside me. You covered so many traumatic events in retelling your story about your life with Shelby, she began. The end of your first long-term relationship, twice. Buying your first home on your own and feeling all alone in it. Losing your ex again in a different capacity when he moved far away. The death of the first dogs you two had together as a couple, which I know is like losing family for you. You covered the stress that came with being elected to city council, the degradation of your health and multiple surgeries, the distance that grew between you and your family of origin, all the time and lost opportunities resulting from the pandemic, Harriet's death. When you were going through those things, you didn't process them because your system was on high alert and you were in survival mode for years. Her observation about not having time to process things reminded me of times when Jim and I first began dating. As we grew emotionally intimate, I'd share stories about my past with him. I'd tell him some of the abuses I endured. I'd tell him about my strokes and my neck fuse and how lonely and difficult it was for me as I recovered. And as he listened, he'd sometimes cry. I remember thinking at the time that his reaction was oddly emotional. I'd wonder, why is this man crying at things that I had not? She continued, You had to keep moving. You had to keep things together. You had to keep your job. You had to pay your bills. You didn't have the ability or space in real time to grieve those losses. While you gave Shelby the care and love and effort she required, from the time you rescued her to the time she passed, you had done and continued to do so much work in therapy that as you cared for Shelby, I think you began caring for yourself in healthier ways. When Shelby's health began failing, you were in a different place, emotionally and physically. You were in a loving relationship. You finally had time and emotional space, something you didn't have when you were going through all those things together with Shelby. In your grief and grieving for her, you were also able and ready to grieve for yourself and your own history. You were able to grieve some emotional wounds core to the abuses you survived. Those old, core wounds were finally able to come to the surface because you felt safe and had the space and the time to finally grieve them. Trauma and grief can become intertwined, and retelling a traumatic experience may feel re-traumatizing, she said, but it's also different. In the retelling, you're no longer in the trauma, literally reliving it. Instead, you're in a safe space, working through the original trauma, as you allow yourself to grieve so you can move forward in a healthier way. Her explanation made complete sense to me. It also allowed me to understand why Jim sometimes cried as I shared pieces of my history, which is incredibly sad. I'd only touched the surface of my sorrow during those years, but never allowed myself to truly feel it, because I was concerned my fear, anger, sorrow, and loss would overwhelm me. I did have to focus on the next thing, and the next, as I held my life together. I've often been told I should write. I've lived an interesting life. As I began to share the existence of my podcast with friends, to memorialize Shelby's life with me, they were excited and supportive that I was finally writing. But as they listened to the episodes of my life with Shelby, several of my friends said they couldn't bring themselves to listen to the end of Shelby's story because they didn't want to be sad. They didn't want to cry. They didn't want the feels. Some of my dearest friends were curating their participation in my life experience by not bearing witness to something that had been deeply painful for me. I felt silenced and diminished. Bearing witness to someone's grief, being present for them as they grieve, can be more important than any words said or cards sent. Being present for loved ones when they need us is among the most important gifts we can give. My disappointment became curiosity, 
Why are so many people afraid of grief and grieving? Why are so many people uncomfortable with crying, even in the privacy of their own company? We seem afraid to grieve. We seem afraid to look back and reflect, and instead prefer to always skip ahead and move forward without sorting through the uncomfortable bits. It's as if there is some unstated shame in grief, as well as guilt around moving on and being happy again, especially in the wake of a tragic loss. Six months after Shelby's death, almost to the day, our friends Chelsea and Greg began fostering a female dog that had been rescued from a puppy mill. They had fostered several dogs since Shelby's death, but there was something about this one. One evening I asked Jim how he'd feel about meeting this dog. I don't want to meet her, he said flatly. Why not? Because I know what's going to happen. What do you mean? I'm going to look at her, and I'm going to want to scoop her up in my arms and take her home. He got choked up as he said this. But Jim, that feeling is exactly how you know it's the right dog for you. We began discussing the possibility of adopting this dog, and as we did so, we realized we felt guilty. We felt as if we were somehow being disloyal to Shelby's memory simply by contemplating adopting a new dog. Eventually, we realized adopting another dog was exactly what Shelby would have wanted for us. She'd have wanted us to save another dog, and the next, and the next. She'd want for us an endless legacy of loving and saving animals in need. Animals that would benefit from the life and love we could give them in the way she had, first from me, and then from both of us. So we adopted Gracie, a golden doodle, who had spent the first seven years of her life living in a rabbit hutch, at a puppy mill, being forced to have litter after litter of puppies, having most likely never touched grass, having never been petted, having never been bathed, having never played, having never been spoken to lovingly. She existed, in a wire hutch, pressed into service, knowing nothing of safety, satisfaction, or love. Now she's living in our quiet home. Her coat is clean and healthy. She feels the grass under her paws many times each day. She played in the snow and loves it. She feels the warmth from the fire in the fireplace. She eats regular meals. She is surrounded by space, sunlight, fresh air, other animals, and all the love, comfort, and stability that come with a forever home. When she forgets herself briefly and her fear momentarily drops away, she is pure joy, until there's a sudden movement or unexpected noise, and she shrinks back into her trauma, drops to the floor, and assumes a submissive posture. When people ask me how she's doing, I reply, she's joy wrapped in trauma, and tell them I'm certain one day soon, the joy will win out. Gracie reminds me every day that there is joy after trauma and sorrow. Good can come from grief. If You Don't Want My Opinion, Episode 10, Good Grief, by Carl Marking. It's a painful reality that love may never find us, but grief certainly will. Grief is the emotional manifestation of the pain we feel from the loss of something or someone core to our sense of identity or purpose. Grief is an inescapable part of life, and yet there is an expectation we must overcome it, conquer it and we must do so as quickly as possible. However, any control we feel we have over our grieving is an illusion. Grief is malleable, dynamic, adaptive, and can also be rigid and unrelenting. Grief can sit quietly underneath everything else in our hearts, our minds, and our bodies, and suddenly hijack us when we least expect it. Grief can also be transformative. We have lost something. It could be a concrete loss, like a person or a pet, or it could be a conceptual or abstract loss, like an ideal or belief. Regardless of what we've lost, the love or value we had assigned to what has been lost can be with us forever, if we let it. But first we must feel, navigate, explore, embrace, and process the loss. Which is to say, we must grieve. Wouldn't it be ideal if experience taught us how to grieve? Unfortunately, the repetition of painful losses, without context or perspective, 
simply teaches us life can be unavoidably painful. It is through grieving we learn we must navigate each loss individually. Our grief and grieving for a loss are as unique as the loss itself. Grief seems to have a more clearly defined beginning. Our grieving can begin as early as the anticipation of a loss, or at the moment of the loss itself. The middle of grief seems a bit more nebulous, and the end may never come at all. People, young and old, are avoidant of grief and sorrow. They don't want to be sad or have the feels, as if they can consciously choose to avoid or defer grief entirely. But that only postpones the inevitable grieving process, or worse, forces it out sideways in any number of maladaptive behaviors. If you've ever found yourself quite unexpectedly and seemingly without explanation, choking back tears at some song lyric, some passage in a book, some scene in a movie, play, or TV show, that random and unexpected emotional bubble is probably deferred grief. At some point in your life, you put something that was too difficult or too painful to deal with in some long-forgotten box in your mind. That unexpected bubble of sorrow that came out sideways in that moment was your grief popping the lid of that box, ever so slightly, to remind you it's still there, unhealed and raw. Somewhere inside, your body remembers the loss, even if you've compartmentalized it and tried to forget it. I recently attended a dinner party where we were talking about cultural differences between Americans and Europeans. The hostess shared a comment she'd once read that a key difference is Europeans believe death is inevitable, but Americans believe death is optional. I think many feel the same way about grief, that it is somehow optional. I've learned over the years that grieving is not about forcing yourself to let go of the pain from a loss, but rather to find ways to accommodate its presence and move forward with it. At some point you have a choice to make. Do I use my pain to fuel my growth and allow it to become something meaningful and instructive? Or do I use my pain as fuel to rage at my circumstances and let it consume me? In other words, do I stay stuck in anger, denial, and sorrow? Or do I grieve and allow my grief to transform me for the better? My parents didn't talk much about feelings as I grew up. My father's feelings fluctuated between his various disappointments and his endless anger. There seemed little else in between. My mother, who I think felt a great many things, never discussed them. I don't recall grief ever being specifically mentioned or discussed by anyone or any organization in my life, other than at church or a funeral service, with words like, We gather here today to mourn the loss of. There is no module on grief or mourning at school. There wasn't a scout badge for grief. The messages I received about grief and mourning were that grief was private, silent, and undesirable. Shake it off. Toughen up. Move on. My earliest direct experience with the death of anything other than a pet was when my father's mother died. His father had died when I was three. I have no memories of him. Not long after, his mother began to lose her vision and her faculties. Eventually, our father built a second story onto our house. He, my mother, and my brother moved upstairs, and his mother moved into the spare room next to my sister in my bedrooms on the first floor. By the time she arrived, although she still wore her horn-rimmed glasses, she was all but blind, used a folding cane to navigate her way, and her cognition quickly worsened. I climbed into bed with her one day, not long after she'd arrived, and she began to scream, Pig! There's a pig in my bed! Somebody get this pig out of my bed! Though I was often left home alone with her, I rarely went near her again. She would sit, either in a chair at the dining room table or on her bed in her bedroom, and stare at the void that was her world. It was unnerving to witness as a child. I had no understanding or context. She looked like my grandmother, but at the same time, she wasn't. Her room was opposite the bathroom, and she often mistook the magazine rack to the right of the bathroom door at the end of the living room sofa as the toilet. Her care was an endless source of discord between my parents, and she was eventually moved into a nursing home. The ward where she stayed was set up as a long row of hospital beds, with only curtains for privacy. It had overly bright fluorescent lighting and smelled of urine. She died just before I started seventh grade. There was a viewing, and when I looked into her coffin, I was certain her eyes would fly open and she would scream, PIG! 
Seeing her in her coffin made her death concrete and final in my mind. I'd been so afraid of her when she lived with us, so confused by her condition, and so disgusted by the conditions of her nursing home that I didn't mourn her loss. Her world was small and tragic and made me sad for her. I remember feeling two things when she died. Relief, for her, and a sense of hope that the dynamic between my parents would improve. It didn't. The following year, a month before my birthday, our mother's father died. I was in eighth grade. I was told he died from a heart attack doing something he loved, shoveling snow. I knew my mother's parents much better than my father's. My maternal grandfather was a quiet man, a thinker, a doer, an artist. My maternal grandmother was 12 years his junior and a homemaker. They had three daughters, though their second child died incredibly young, before my mother was conceived. They lived in Wisconsin, and their home was always a peaceful refuge for me when we'd visit. Their house is tied to memories of cool summers, the museum where he worked, the zoo where he'd painted murals, the public splash pool near their home, and the smell of fermenting hops and malt coming from the not-too-distant breweries. His funeral service was less concrete than my grandmother's had been the prior year. It was a confusing business, and as I looked around the room for his casket, all I saw were floral arrangements. Where's Grandpa? I asked my sister. He was cremated, she replied. Conceptually, I knew what that was, but I couldn't connect the dots emotionally. I saw my mother standing with her sister, crying, and went over to give her a hug. Stop hanging on me, she snapped loudly and shoved me backward. You're always hanging on me. Heads turned in our direction. She turned away from me and continued talking with her sister as they both cried. Although my mother cried frequently over the loss of her father, she never discussed it with or around me. Because I had a much stronger and more solidified connection with my grandfather, I felt his loss more deeply. I mourned him. I spent months looking for him in crowds. Anytime I saw a tall, thin man with white hair and wire-rimmed glasses, I'd think, just for a second, it was him. I'd get a rush of adrenaline, then realize, of course it wasn't him, and my heart would sink. The viewing held after my father's mother had died had given me a sense of closure I didn't get from the memorial held for my mother's father. There was a hole in my heart that my brain kept trying to fill. I missed his dry sense of humor. I missed his unusually breathy laugh. I missed how my mother would light up each week when one of his letters to her arrived, which he'd sign, pop, with little squiggles around the word as if a balloon had exploded. I missed how peaceful she was while sitting down to write him back using a lined pad of stationery from the local grocery store. I missed my grandmother's lighthearted spirit as she grieved for her husband. I missed the rare sense of normalcy and peace we enjoyed when we were all in my grandfather's presence. He was one of the only people for whom our father would be on his best behavior. I was left with unresolved feelings that I pushed deep inside myself. My maternal grandmother, although I typically only saw her once or twice a year, helped me process my grandfather's loss. She ended up in the hospital within weeks of his death, just before my 14th birthday. I wrote her a letter expressing my concern for her and my sorrow over his death. My letter went unanswered, nor did I receive a card from her for my birthday with the usual $5 bill tucked inside. A small box arrived at the house with a note from my grandmother which read, Your grandfather made this for you for your birthday. It was a handcrafted leather coin purse. It smelled of leather and his art studio. Then the magazine Psychology Today arrived, addressed to me. She'd gotten me a years-long subscription. I assumed these things were my card and gift that year. I never asked her about my unanswered letter or the absence of a birthday card. The story I made up for myself was that she'd been too ill at the time or that she was too sad to respond. When we don't discuss our reasoning with people, we force them to create their own backstory to fill the void, which I did. Almost 30 years later, while on disability leave following my strokes, my cognitive therapist suggested I scrapbook photographs as an exercise in facial recognition, categorization, and sequencing. I was having difficulty in all three areas at the time. To that end, I asked my mother for copies of a set of sepia-toned portraits of her parents that she kept on the piano in her living room. They were my favorite pictures of them. In response, she gave me dozens of photographs of myself and various relatives, 
As I sorted through them, I noticed she'd written something on the front of almost every picture of me using a black marker, not in the margins, but often right next to my image in such a way I wouldn't be able to hide the writing with a mat if I framed them. She hadn't done this to any of the other photos, just the ones of me. Under the last picture was a handwritten letter from my grandmother. It was her response to the letter I'd written her when she was in the hospital after my grandfather had died. Three decades later, I finally received her reply. My mother had kept it from me all those years. What she didn't send were the copies of her parents' portraits. It was upsetting, but not at all out of character. She had a long history of withholding from me that which she knew I liked or wanted. I asked her why she hadn't given me the letter when it had originally arrived. What are you talking about? Of course I did. I was just keeping it safe for you, she replied. I'd never seen it before. It was dated the day before my 14th birthday. The letter had a clear indentation from a paperclip, which left behind a small bit of rust where she had undoubtedly attached her signature $5 bill. The bill had been fastened to the page for so many years, the paper was stained from the ink in exactly its shape. My mother must have removed the money in the clip before passing the letter on to me, most likely to support her position that I had received it all those years ago, and that she had indeed simply been saving it for me. But the stain left behind by the ink of the $5 bill, along with the indentation and rust from the paper clip, told the letter's story. My grandmother's letter was full of hope, love, and her wish that I not worry about her, but focus on myself and my life. She wished but one thing for me, that I one day find work I loved, like my grandfather had. I was grieving many things in real time the spring after my grandfather died, decades before I ever read my grandmother's thoughtful response to my letter. That was the spring my mother called me up from the basement and asked if I was a faggot. That was the spring I sought help from my school's guidance counselor about being called a fag, and instead received a powerful message that being gay was not okay. That was the spring my father made it clear he wanted nothing more to do with me. I was carrying the loss of my father, the loss of my own sense of self, and the loss of trust in my mother that she was my protector, all of which were abstract losses my 14-year-old self didn't know how to process. Summer arrived. We took our traditional vacation to Wisconsin and stayed in our grandparents' home, where my grandmother had continued to live alone. Although there was no way at the time for her to help me with my other struggles, struggles she knew nothing about, she continued to give me the chance to discuss my grandfather's death. My grandmother and I had always enjoyed a special bond. She saw me as no one else did. She had this way of looking at me with a twinkle in her blue eyes. She'd simply smile, and I would feel seen, safe, and loved. She took me aside one day and brought me down to my grandfather's basement art studio. Take that large black wooden case over there, lay it on the floor and open it, she directed me. Go through his things, she said, gesturing to his entire studio, and fill that case with anything you love. When you're finished, I want you to show each piece to me and tell me why you picked it. She left me to my task. We were never allowed to enter his studio when he was alive. Spending time in his sacred space, alone with his easel, brushes, paints, and the stained smock he wore as he worked, made me feel more connected to him than when he'd been alive. She had granted me access to the physical manifestation of his spirit. After a time, we went through the pieces I'd selected, and I told her why I picked each one. It was a beautiful moment between us. He had done a collection of pieces on the legend of Paul Bunyan, and before we finished, she insisted I put them in. You're my big Paul Bunyan, and I want you to have these, she said. Another day, she pulled me aside and took me up to their bedroom. I think you'll appreciate these most, and I want you to have them, she said, as she gave me his wedding ring, some other rings he enjoyed wearing, and the gold casing of a pocket watch his father had owned. I left that trip with a renewed sense of attachment to him and stopped looking for him in crowds. He felt part of me in an entirely new and more profound way. To this day, his legacy of art makes me feel connected to something bigger than myself. I carry the best of him with me. Jim and I have dozens of his pieces hanging on the walls throughout our home, pen and inks, colored pencils, watercolors, and a couple of his oil paintings. 
Every day as I go through the routine of my life, I see evidence of his and the beauty he brought into the world through his art. Every day, I am reminded of my grandmother's thoughtful kindness. She knew how to grieve and gave me a masterclass in it. Having a loved one die in the grieving that follows is a universal loss shared by every person on the planet. It is arguably the most studied and understood form of grief, and yet it can still leave us mystified and lost. Dr. Elizabeth Kubler-Ross, a psychiatrist who wrote the book On Death and Dying, noted five distinct stages, denial, anger, bargaining, depression, and acceptance. Generally speaking, we pass through each of these stages as we grieve, but our path can also be nonlinear. We may skip forward and backward as we grieve, and for some, acceptance is years away, or may never come at all. When I postpone the grieving process, I can become avoidant and disconnected from my grief. I dissociate from my feelings and rely on the passage of time and emotional distance to pretend my emotional wound is healed, but of course it hasn't. It just became more challenging to manage as I piled many other emotions and coping mechanisms on top of the original wound, the original loss. Grief can be quite similar to a deep physical wound in that neither always heals on its own. Each can require attention or intervention. Grief therapy can be a bit like urgent care for the soul. Just as physical wounds sometimes need to be cleaned and mended, emotional wounds need to be brought out into the open, aired out, and our perspectives given a nudge to help heal our divided spirit. Grief, like a deep physical wound, should not be left to fester. As I said at the beginning, losses can also be abstract. We can lose an ideal, a belief, our faith, or our trust in someone or something. My beliefs about my self-worth suffered greatly as a result of my physical and sexual abuse. As an adolescent, just as I began to re-engage with my sexual self, I was raped and lost all sense of agency over my body. The secrets I carried drained my spirit and fed my fear and depression. I was not equipped to process such abstract losses. I had no one to talk to. I was wounded and angry and turned that anger inward on myself, which did nothing but feed my confusion and make me depressed. One in four children experience child abuse each year. One in three girls and one in six boys are survivors specifically of sexual assault. One in four women and one in seven men over the age of 18 have been the victim of severe physical violence by an intimate partner at some point in their lifetime. These are staggering numbers, which never seem to improve with each new study. I believe the actual numbers are higher, as incidents often go unreported by the victim or undocumented by the persons to whom they've been reported, especially within families. The instinctive denial that kicks in for the person being told by another family member, especially a child, that they are or have been victimized is a real phenomenon. The person being told doesn't want it to be true for any number of reasons. Disbelief in reaction to someone telling you they have been violated or victimized is an additional violation they must now bear. I know many women and men who are survivors of one form of abuse or another who have never said a word about it within their families or to any official. I didn't. Who could I have told at the time? I am sure everyone listening to this is either a survivor of some kind of abuse or knows someone who is. Victimizers take many forms. A parent, a sibling, a beloved relative, clergy, medical practitioners, and their violations leave a trail of countless broken bonds of faith, trust, confidence, and safety. Such violations can have a lifelong impact. Even after we've grieved, our faith, our trust, our core beliefs can remain damaged. After a loss has been processed, a mark can remain. I had an emotionally, sexually, and physically abusive childhood. My clearest, earliest memory is of our father putting my sister and me in the bathroom one night with paper and pencils or crayons. I was around four years old. I remember the quiet of the night, the damp smell of the room, the tail from the toilet paper roll swinging gently back and forth in the breeze from the heater vent, 
the 1970s stripy wallpaper, the Dixie cup dispenser mounted to the wall by the sink with a bright metal band around its middle. I remember drawing the same amorphous image over and over as I sat on the floor next to my sister. We sat side by side, in our pajamas and our silence, drawing. It is a soundless memory, segregated from all other childhood memories, encased in glass like a snow globe. I often absentmindedly drew that image at the time. It looked like a squat figure sitting on a beanbag. Although I always had access to the memories of my brother pimping me out to his friends, there was nothing at the other end of this memory for me. Until my mid-twenties. It was a time in my life when I felt safe. My parents were divorced. My father had been out of my life for years. And I was dating a guy whose mother had taken a liking to me. She knew her son and I were dating and was fine with it. She operated on a different wavelength from anyone else I'd ever met. She stopped me in the kitchen one day as I was about to leave their house and gave me a book on cassette tape. Listen to this, she said. I have a feeling you'll get something out of it. I put the cassette tape in my car stereo as I drove back to my mother's house. Halfway home, the woman on the tape said she knew when her father was going to molest her each night because she'd see the bar of light visible under her bedroom door, broken by his footsteps. I began shaking. I broke into a sweat. I felt as if I was both going to pass out and vomit simultaneously. I quickly pulled onto the gravel shoulder of the road. My mind was assaulted by memories. Among them, memories of being hyper-focused on the light under my bedroom door, and that light being broken by my father's footsteps. After that, the floodgates were open. The memories of my father's sexual abuse reemerged, and I was drowning in them. I was terrified to go to sleep each night because every single morning, I'd wake up with new memories. Every single morning, I'd wake up and feel as if I were just a little less me and a little more someone else, someone I didn't completely recognize. The memory of being in the bathroom in the middle of the night suddenly made horrifying sense. I began having suicide ideation. It seemed the only way to make the memories stop. After several days of this, I approached my mother and told her what was happening. I told her I needed to see someone, or I was going to kill myself. I didn't say it as a threat. I stated it as fact. To her credit, she paid for a few sessions of therapy for me. She even came with me once, but cried the whole time, saying, I didn't know! I didn't know! It wasn't particularly productive, but I also know it was not easy for her to walk through that door given the context of the session. That round of therapy was particularly gut-wrenching, often disturbing, and terrifying. Each answer led to another, darker question. I was able to bridge long-standing gaps in my life story, but my view of my history, my father, and my family was changed forever. I wrote my father a letter at the time, confronting him about what I now could remember he'd done to me. He never responded, but I felt better having stood up for my younger self. Our father wasn't always the angry, abusive person he became. When my siblings and I were quite young, we used to meet him in the driveway as he got home from work. We'd wait in the front yard or venture to the corner of our street and listen for the distinctive whistle-chip purr of the engine of his yellow Volkswagen Beetle. We'd run to the car and wait as he recorded his mileage in a book he kept in the pocket of the driver's side door. He'd put it back, and as he'd pull his hand out of the door pocket, he'd have some treat for us. Boxes of good and plenty, good and fruity, packets of sen sen, whatever he managed to scrounge up that day. And I loved it. Our house was once filled with music. Our father played string bass, the piano, the recorder, the melodica, and the accordion. Our mother played piano and trombone. We would occasionally crowd around the piano as a family, sing songs, and laugh. Then it all stopped. There were no more treats at the car door. There was no more goodwill. It was as if a different person came home one day and the father we knew never returned. Instead of meeting him in the driveway, my new ritual became finding a place to hide around the time he was due home. I'd hear the engine of his beetle whistle up the driveway. The front door would slam shut with such force, the stem were on the shelves and the dining room would rattle, startled by the force of the blow. The bickering between my parents would begin. Punishments would be doled out. 
the liquor would flow, and the mood would darken into night. In complete opposition to that memory, I have another. It is summer, and my father and I are in the above-ground pool in the backyard. It's just the two of us. I am on his shoulders, clinging to his forehead with one hand, and clutching at his bare, sun-drenched shoulder with the other, the oil from his skin making it difficult for me to hold on to him. He is bobbing us up and down in the cool water. I recall the simple smell of his hair and skin, mixed with chlorine, fresh air, and sunlight. Aside from the days of meeting him in the driveway for treats, it is the only other happy memory I have of my time with my father for the entirety of his life. Victims have incredibly strong emotional ties to their abusers, especially when the abuser is a parent. I was no exception. When my father turned away from me in eighth grade and disowned me, it was an incredibly confusing and painful loss. I was struggling desperately with whether or not I may be gay, and I didn't, at the time, have access to my memories of his sexual abuse. I had memories of his emotional and physical abuse, which were more than enough, yet his rejection was still devastating. With the reemergence of my memories of my father's sexual abuse when I was a child, I had a more complete picture of my abusive past. With this new awareness came something completely unexpected. My view of my brother's actions when I was seven took on a different context. I came to realize that what he'd done to me was a version of what our father had most likely done to him, what had most likely been done to our father by his father, and so on back through time. Not all survivors of abuse become victimizers, but most victimizers were, at some point, abused. Each time I see a study on the matter, the numbers work out roughly the same. Somewhere around a third of victims go on to be victimizers, and the majority do not. I remember being terrified after the reemergence of my memories of my father's sexual abuse that I would become a victimizer. It was a baseless fear, but it haunted me. Most of my life has been rooted in grief. It was a constant weight on my heart and spirit until I prioritized seeking help. As I did the work, I found clarity and perspective. At that time in my life, the work didn't bring forgiveness, but it allowed me to grieve the loss of my childhood innocence. It helped me gain insight into a dynamic between my father and me that never made sense. My therapy and my grieving brought me understanding, which brought me a kind of peace. Two decades after the memories of my father's abuse reemerged, a therapist handed me a blank piece of paper and asked me to draw the image I had doodled in the bathroom as a child. It was the first time I'd ever been asked to do so. I drew the oddly shaped squat man sitting on the beanbag, as I had drawn so often as a child, and thought nothing of it. As I handed it to her, it slipped from my hand, rotating 90 degrees to my right as it floated to the floor between us. I reached down to pick it up, and in that moment, realized for the first time, it was an adult man's penis and scrotum. It was one of the final missing pieces to the very disturbing puzzle that was my childhood. As I continued with therapy, very much to my surprise, I found more than an intellectual understanding for what I imagined my brother most likely endured. I found genuine empathy, which helped me move forward with my life. I asked my brother and sister as adults if they had any memory of our father's sexual abuse. They didn't. I left it alone. The brain does what it must to protect itself, and poking around repressed memories is not to be done lightly. Regarding my rape, I rarely ever talked about it until I started podcasting. I'm strong enough to do so now, and there are too few male survivors able to shine a light on this issue. It was one of the worst experiences I have endured, but not only did I endure it, I survived it. After much therapy, I was eventually able to separate the first half of knowing my rapist from the horror and trauma that came later. He was my first kiss, and it was magical at the time. I'm glad I was able to reconnect with the joy of that moment under the stars. Despite the work I've done, my rape left a mark on me I've yet to fully remove. It's a mark I may never be able to remove. It impacts my ability to be fully in the moment with Jim when we're intimate. I'm quick to make a joke or move away. I sometimes need to immediately increase our emotional or physical distance. I strive to find balance between the combination of my sexual abuses 
and a healthy intimacy with Jim. It's incredibly difficult, and I don't always feel entirely whole or present in the moment. For years I felt broken. Given my history, I will never know what it feels like to make love with another person without having to also expend energy, no matter how small, to keep memories of my abuse away. I still occasionally grieve the loss of an innocence I never knew. It's a loss and a trauma I will always grieve. The best I've been able to do is make room for it in a way that minimizes its toll on me. Having done the work in therapy, I no longer feel broken. Having done the work, I'm able to allow myself to be loved, and I found a loving partner in Jim. I've also found my voice on the matter, and I'm able to talk about it for people who can't, and for people who need to hear about it. My rape taught me the value of believing people when they make claims of sexual harassment or assault. But most importantly, I'm now in control of my reactions to what happened to me that night. I own those memories. They no longer own me. They can still hijack me from time to time in deeply intimate situations, but I'm much better able to regroup and rebalance. And that is a win as far as I'm concerned. The final abstract loss I want to share is around my loss of faith in my body after my strokes. I was working 60 to 80 hours a week between my full-time job and my elected role as a city council person. I wasn't sleeping well. I developed a cough that wouldn't quit, then a headache, the likes of which I'd never felt before. I saw my doctor who prescribed a steroid, and everything felt better. Then on Halloween 2010, as I was wrapping up work for the day, my right eye started to dart around of its own free will, and I couldn't think properly. When I learned in the hospital I'd had three strokes, I felt betrayed by my body in a way I'd never imagined I could. It impacted every facet of my life for years. I didn't feel safe in my own skin. I didn't trust that a headache was just a headache, not the start of another stroke. I was left with a clinical anxiety disorder, and to this day I struggle with verbal aphasia and name recall. While recording my podcasts, the verbal aphasia can be so debilitating I will have to say the same series of words, sentences, or paragraphs several times before what comes out of my mouth actually aligns to what I've scripted. Sometimes I think I'm saying one thing, but something completely different comes out, and I don't catch it until I'm cleaning up the recording. When I'm speaking about particularly painful memories, I will sometimes say things aloud that I have no conscious memory of saying. They'll be spoken quietly, and it isn't until I'm editing that I realize I've done it. I view them as ghost recordings of my subconscious. Sometimes they're supportive, and sometimes not so much. I'll hear myself whisper things like, I don't want to talk about this, and you can do this, you're safe now, or your voice sounds like shit, and who wrote this crap? I find the whole thing frustrating as hell and entirely fascinating. As for the name recall, there are times I'd be with Jim the first few years after my strokes, well into our relationship, and I'd look at him and say, I'm sorry, I can't remember your name. It was embarrassing and demoralizing. It's much better, but if I'm tired, it comes back quickly. My saving grace during my recovery was that I had enough access to my cognitive function to be able, at times, to be aware I was experiencing some momentary deficit in real time. This, too, was fascinating, and my fascination made it easier for me to bear. I shared this perspective with a neurologist at the rehab facility. You must have been very smart before your strokes, he said. In response to his use of the past tense, I thought, fuck you. My primary physician in the same facility, upon meeting me for the first time, put his hand on my shoulder and said, Doctors treat only the symptoms and we do what we can for stroke patients. But because of my faith, I believe your stroke is all part of God's plan for you. It's God's will that you had your stroke, and now you just need to accept it. And again, I thought, fuck you. Each time someone on my care team would tell me, you may never be able to, or you can't, I'd think, fuck you, and I'd try all the harder. Anger consistently gave me a rush of cognitive clarity during my recovery. My symptoms were all over the place. I lost my sense of pitch. The whole world was out of sync, as my visual center was processing at a different speed than my auditory center. I couldn't stand the color red. Anytime it surrounded me, I wanted to vomit. 
I had a horrible five minutes in a Target restroom. I couldn't recognize faces. I was eating moldy food. I would leave the burner of the gas stove on all night. If I put something in my backpack, it was as if it didn't exist. I'd be looking for said thing, see the backpack, and think, backpack. I couldn't reason out that there may be something inside it. It was just a single object, backpack. As I was walking out of the rehab facility one day after outpatient therapy, I was facing the road and a Kia Soul drove by. It made me physically uncomfortable to look at it. My brain was screaming, don't look at that. That isn't right. That shape is all wrong. That is not what a car should look like. I thought it must be how people with autism spectrum disorder feel when they have an adverse reaction to something the rest of the world thinks is perfectly unremarkable. When I had that thought, I was flooded with a sense of gratitude. I was granted a first-person experience of something for which I would have otherwise had, at best, only an intellectual understanding. Eventually, I developed an elaborate set of coping mechanisms and was able to return to work to be successful and was even promoted after executing a global project over two years to 140 countries and over 40 languages. At the time, I thought that project would break me. In hindsight, it made me work my cognitive ass off, and I view it as one of the key contributors to my recovery. But no one could figure out why I had the strokes in the first place. Any small oddity that occurred in my body, and I was off to the ER. It was expensive, exhausting, disruptive, and endlessly frightening. I was grateful things weren't worse. I was grateful I was recovering. But when I went on to have additional stroke-like events, I lost faith in a medical community that had stopped trying to find the root cause. I developed a theory about what was happening. I went to at least six cardiologists before one not only listened to me, but agreed with my premise and repeated a study I believed to be flawed. In so doing, she confirmed I was right, which led to open-heart surgery, and I haven't had a stroke event since. My rehab neurologist was right. I was very smart before my strokes, and my former intelligence gave me an advantage in my recovery. I spent years mourning what I had lost of myself. Cognitively speaking, I still feel at times as if I have one hand tied behind my back. Things that used to come to me effortlessly now feel as if I have to swim through jello to reach. But my strokes also revealed a grit and determination I didn't know I possessed. I have returned to as close a version of my former self as possible. My strokes left me with a renewed appreciation for all that I had and a profound awareness of how lucky I was. Things could have been so much worse. Physical wounds can heal faster than emotional ones. Grieving something abstract or conceptual, like the loss of one's innocence, family, or health, is complex. It requires introspection, reflection, and sometimes chronological or physical distance. All forms of loss, trauma, and grief have something in common. They require both a willingness and ability to do the work to understand them, as well as their full impact on us. In other words, they require us to grieve. I grew up in a family that swept just about everything under some kind of rug. Society and my parents taught me, as a boy, that crying made me weak and difficult. I was shown grief should be held inside and kept private. What a crock. Crying when experiencing sorrow is one of the most natural things. Humans may have cornered the market on crying, but species the world over grieve. Allowing ourselves to receive comfort in response to our grief is to accept a loving exchange of support and empathy. Allowing ourselves to be vulnerable with someone is an act of faith, trust, and bravery that builds and strengthens our connections to the people around us. It is in connection with others that we find support, stability, and strength. The goal in grieving is to navigate our grief, move through our loss, and carry with us the value of the person, ideal, or belief we're grieving. Grief can be both transformed and transformative. Grief and grieving are inevitable, healthy, and ultimately good for us. Embrace the feels. Open that box you locked down and squirreled away. There is life on the other side of grief. You may not be exactly the same person you were, but that's what growth does. Growth makes us better, stronger, and, hopefully, wiser versions of ourselves.
you'll feel better on the other side. I want to end my thoughts on grief with some thoughts on forgiveness. We often tend to view forgiving someone who has done unforgivable things to us as a kind of weakness or failing on our part. It's as if we feel we must maintain a sort of burning flame in perpetuity as a memorial to the unforgivable thing done to us. But consider this, the fuel used for that fire is coming from within us. It's coming from our own spirit. We are inadvertently giving that person who wronged us even more of our energy, and we're holding ourselves captive by holding on so tightly to our anger or our righteous indignation. On the other side of grieving for the things that have been done to us, we can find forgiveness. Multiple therapists have said to me that forgiveness is not the same as condoning the victimizer's behavior, that it is not the same as forgetting. Rather, it is an act of letting go, of no longer giving our victimizer any more power over us. Power, energy, time, mind share. I've only recently come to understand this in the work I've done over decades of therapy. In the end, forgiving our victimizer is something we do for ourselves, not for them. We will never forget. Some things can never be made right. Some things leave a scar or a mark on us forever. Forgiving our victimizer does not make us more of a victim, but rather allows us to no longer throw our good energy after their bad behavior. Forgiveness allows us to save our precious energy for the things that matter in our lives today and in our beautiful futures. Epilogue The final episode of my coming out story elicited a response from both of my siblings. In the wounded, gaslighting tradition of our family, they took it upon themselves to tell me how inaccurate my retelling of my own life story was. It's classic abuser behavior to tell the abused they're wrong. All my life I've been told things like, You're too sensitive. You're always keeping score. Are you going to believe what you remember or what I tell you? You made me do it. We learned all about gaslighting as prisoners in our parents' war. My sister left many comments on the platform where my podcast is hosted. She, who has always defined life in moral absolutes, chose not to grasp the distinction between compressing a timeline for the sake of telling my story and a deposition. She argued that because I'd compressed the timeline, the conversation I'd shared between the two of us after I came out to her my junior year of college never happened. She has always prided herself on the truth, her truth, which I have occasionally found to be a slightly sanitized version of reality. She's partially right. I did compress the timeline, and we didn't have that exact conversation. She did say to me that my being gay was an affront against God and nature, but I did not, at the time, call her out for her hypocrisy. She was about to begin that journey. In fact, I never pointed it out to her. By the time her journey ended, I didn't have the heart. In the end, karma took care of things, as it so often does, and left her brokenhearted. I decided in my retelling to stand up for my younger self in a way I couldn't at the time. And it was a point that needed making. All of us can be too quick to stand in moral judgment of others when we have no place casting stones. The way she responded to my coming out in college put the initial wedge between us. It was never removed, left a wound between us that never healed, and over the years, divided us. Her comments about the episode did spark another memory. I spent some time one summer working with her and met one of her co-workers. My sister had often spoken highly of this woman, and they'd become good friends. When I met her, it was as obvious to me that this woman was gay as it was that she had a deep crush on my sister who seemed oblivious. I imagined she simply enjoyed the positive energy from this woman and attributed it to their friendship. Said friend went on to have a terrible car accident. My sister told me how she made time to visit her friend frequently while she was in the hospital. I had a childhood friend who ended up in a coma for a time after high school, and I'd visit him as often as I could. Few people make the kind of time for others when they need it most, and I admired my sister's commitment to her friend. One day my sister chose to tell me her friend had professed her love for my sister, and in response, my sister severed all contact with her. My sister was free to make whatever choices she wanted regarding her friend, 
but I found it needlessly hurtful, both to sever ties with her friend and to choose to tell me about it. Had she not told me, I'd have been unaware of the entire situation. Rejecting her friends simply for falling in love with her was disappointing. My sister was smart, funny, pretty, and a fiercely loyal friend. What wasn't there to love? She had simply told my sister her truth. The rejection of her friend spoke more to my sister's insecurity and woundedness than to any wrongdoing on the part of her friend. My sister delivered the news to me as though it were some moral victory. Instead, it highlighted my sister's lack of empathy for the rejections I'd already been dealt on that front when I came out. My brother telling me how our father said, I always knew he'd be a faggot. My mother wishing me dead, cursing me with AIDS, and throwing me out. My friends from college rejecting me. My sister's own response, that my being gay was an affront against God and nature. My family of origin has long been short on empathy, which was never modeled in our home by our parents. When we were young, my sister was often my protector, but her reaction to my coming out and her choice to tell me about rejecting her friend for being gay made it clear she was no longer in that role. My brother also reacted to my final coming out episode. He mailed me a letter and sent me a message. The letter arrived in a typed envelope with no return address. His message was implied. I know where you live. The moment I touched the envelope, I knew it was from him. I could feel his energy all over it. My instinct was to toss it in the recycle bin, unopened. My intellect advised I should assess it for any physical threat, given our history of his violence and abuse. His letter was true to form. He defended the fact that he'd pressed me into sexual service with his friends when I was seven and eight years old. He even documented some of their full names. An odd choice, given Maryland has no statute of limitations for prosecuting child sexual abuse. He then went on to say that I had to acknowledge that I got something out of it too. A father himself, he believes a seven-year-old child could get something positive out of having been coerced into sex. The impact of his pimping me out as a child was the core issue I worked on in therapy. Like my rape, I carried that experience entirely alone into adulthood. Then, in 2016, in response to our brother going through what I can only describe as an identity crisis, my sister and I exchanged a series of texts and phone calls, during which she revealed she knew my brother had pimped me out. She also named the boys' names. I had no idea how she knew about it in such detail, but when she rattled off their names, I began to shake. She blindsided me, both with her level of detail and her lack of regard for how upsetting it was for her to put that level of knowledge and detail in front of me with no warning. Our overall exchange on the topic of my brother's crisis was a bittersweet moment in our relationship. The exchange between us was honest and vulnerable in a way we hadn't ever been with one another. She asked me if I thought our father had sexually abused our brother and I shared the memory I have of our father putting she and I in the bathroom at night. I don't remember that, she said. She didn't say it as a rejection of my memory, just a statement of fact. She then went on to tell me about a time as a child when she ran away because she didn't feel safe in our home. I packed a bag for you and took you with me. I figured if our house wasn't safe for me, it wasn't safe for you, she said. I had no memory of that. But the conversation was equally traumatizing. As she outlined her actions regarding our brother, she conveyed an anger that rose to rage, and in her rage and woundedness, she crossed a number of lines with me. She revealed a level of disdain for anything LGBTQ that I was unaware she carried. In her need to publicly shame and denigrate our brother, she did collateral damage to me and my journey. Whether she meant to or not, she belittled my sexual orientation and my history of sexual abuse at the hands of our brother. She told me how none of the boys involved fared well in life, and although she placed the blame for that squarely on our brother for having pimped me out to them, she was oblivious to the fact that I was the victim in that situation, not those boys. I still carried tremendous guilt and shame around the matter at the time, and she spoke with complete indifference for what that must have been like for me.
I was so rattled by the way she tied my being pimped out to the future failures of those boys' lives that I reached out to my therapist. What those boys did to you, my therapist began, was unforgivable. But I'm sure if that had never happened, they would have all ended up exactly where they are as adults. Any eighth-grade boy who would accept a blowjob from someone as young as you were was already wounded and broken. Which is why, she said, but I interrupted her, I know, which is why, whether or not that had ever even happened at all, they'd still have ended up exactly as they are, she finished. During another of my sister's rants, I attempted to point out to her that her reaction had become blown out of proportion. I paraphrased a line from Moby Dick, If your chest were cannon, you'd shoot your heart upon him. She couldn't see it. She was completely emotionally hijacked, but it was clear to me she was unleashing a lifetime of anger over his abuse and bullshit. She was blinded by her rage and woundedness. As unsettling as it was to learn my sister had known all along about our brother pimping me out, finding out my mother knew was worse. Around the same time as my sister's exchanges with me, my mother and I happened to have a conversation about a bicycle accident between my brother and I. It happened after I refused to let him pimp me out any longer and left him with a broken collarbone. I always thought you'd done that to him as a payback for what he'd done to you with those boys, she said. It was as if the wind had been knocked out of me. First, because my brother had been the aggressor in that situation, not me. And second, because her remark made it crystal clear she knew what he had done to me. She'd known for 41 years. She'd always known. I kept thinking about our therapy session in my 20s when the memories of my father's sexual abuse reemerged. I didn't know. I didn't know, she cried to the therapist. But she did know something. She'd known about my brother pimping me out when I was seven and eight years old, but said nothing, except to ask me six years after the fact if I was a faggot. She'd known what he'd done for 15 years and did nothing, except wish me dead, curse me with AIDS, and throw me out of her house when I came out to her. The whole business made one thing clear. Neither my sister nor my mother had learned a single thing from my coming out, my sexual abuse, or the years of difficulty we had finding healthy relationships with one another. After that series of revelations, I was able to see the truth of it. There was no chance of ever repairing my relationship with either of them. Sometimes realizing it's time to let go of something or someone that is bad for us is as good as it gets. I was finally able to acknowledge the reality of my family dynamics. I was finally able to see each of them clearly. I began letting go of my fantasies of ever having had, or ever being able to have, meaningful relationships with them. And I finally began, and continue, to mourn a family that never truly existed, which has been the hardest thing I've ever done for myself. The more work I did, the greater the divide between us, which is not at all uncommon in wounded, broken, or damaged families. The healthier one member becomes, relationships become more challenging, more difficult, more complex. My perspective shifted and evolved, and the more work I did, the less I was able to be around my family. They were stuck, unwilling or unable to do the work. I want to be clear I do not say this to imply I am somehow better than anyone in my family of origin. If anything, I feel I'm simply luckier. My choices and life events put me on a different path. I had people, buoys in the water of my life, who nudged me at key moments, which landed me on a path to recovery. Once I found the path, I chose to embrace and follow it. It was not easy. It was and is often painful. It can be lonely, but it's also been transformative and allowed me to save my life. I've long surrounded myself with a family of choice. Some have been in it for more than 30 years, some only a matter of months. Each member of my family of choice loves me for who I am, supports my dreams, and is present 
for my joys and sorrows, and each member receives the same love, support, and loyalty from me in return. My family of choice is full of wonderfully flawed, earnest, honest, open, direct, dynamic, intelligent people who are nothing short of amazing. I am not the person I was when I began the work to unpack and process my lifetime of abuse and betrayal. And even though there are still sometimes fresh and painful revelations, I have a wonderful life, and I wish nothing less for you.